as they make their way down, recall with me that um, we've been talking about unity and diversity for the past several weeks. Unity and diversity that Jesus earnestly prayed for us specifically and directly even the night before he died, perhaps just before his prayer in Gethsemane. Unity and diversity that the Apostle Paul also stresses for the early church to work hard to maintain. Paul giving us that illustration, that picture of the body of Christ being like a human body with all of its diverse parts, but nevertheless connected to and being united with and in Christ as its head. And unity and diversity is something that Paul and Peter stressed by pointing out that now, on this side of the cross, on this side of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, in all you all, in all of us, that now believers are the new temple of God, each of us a living stone being intended and shaped and molded and carefully fitted, sometimes quickly, sometimes over the course of a life, of a lifetime, being shaped and built up by God himself, that master tecton, that master stonemason, until it fits just right, just perfectly, each of us in our own intended specific place in the great temple of God. We also stress that It's not only unity despite our diversity that witnesses God and what he's all about to the world. It is that. But it's also our unity because of our diversity that is needed to more fully witness God and what he's all about. Because no one person, save Jesus himself, No one person, no one type of person, no one or two spiritual gifts, no small group of people using some of their talents for God, not one of them on their own can even come close to a full witness of our great, big, amazing, infinite God. But all of us together All believers with all of our different gifts and talents and experiences and personalities and idiosyncrasies and all of us working together in harmony. Now that, my friends, can more fully witness the breadth and depth of even our infinite God himself. And that's his plan. In Jesus' words from John 17, such diverse unity can indeed, Jesus prayed, let the world know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. So important is our unity and diversity. Your response to this series on unity has been overwhelming. Something about this sort of unity with others really struck a chord in many of you. It really resonates with us, doesn't it? We all want to belong. We're created with that deep desire to be a part of something that's greater than ourselves alone. We're created to be relational by our ultimately relational three-in-one God. And so really, because of your response to unity and diversity, 
decided to put on hold our series on the prophets, we'll save it for this fall, and instead dig even deeper into Christian unity. Now I know you were all looking so forward to the prophets, weren't you? Maybe not. Well, like it or not, we'll get there down the road. But um, for our next series, we're calling it The Essentials. It should take us into June, at least. And I want to explore together with you a key basis for our unity and diversity. Pastor Dave and I have hinted at this basis throughout the series so far, but we really haven't had a chance yet to really dive into it. So we want to take that chance now. To introduce this series officially, we once again sent our crack man and woman on the street reporting team fresh back from their probation due to their last scandalous effort. (laughs) Everyone deserves second chances. And armed with a new host reporter, I understand. Well, well, well. And this time we sent them out in your midst into the church, and this is what we found. Let's watch. Hello, West Bowles. Brad Brady here. Pastor Todd is starting a new series about the essentials of our faith. Let's go around and see what West Bowles says those essentials are. I would say that, hey, knowing that... uh... Jesus Christ is the one and only way. I love God and love people. Trust. Trust in God. Prayer. Staying home when it's cold out. <laughs> Those might be essentials today. Are you going first? You go ahead. Okay. Oh, hold on. Let me think about it. Well, definitely it's by loving God, by knowing his word. Ah, take it to heart month. There we go. Shema. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. I would say the um, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, all three in one. Belief in Jesus Christ. That's right. Well, you got me. <laughs> <laughs> to like the Steelers and the Red Wings? <laughs> well, saving relationship with Jesus. Prayer. I think just faith in God. Prayer. Loving others. Can you okay. guess what one of those essentials might be? personal walk with Jesus Christ. Well, I think being in the service of others. Essential would be a firm belief in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Please don't do <laughs> We were asking people about the essentials of our, fa- oh my goodness, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to bother you. Definitely prayer. Believing that we are saved by grace. Is this like a Jay Leno thing where you're trying to make me look silly? Do I look like Jay Leno? Love God and love others. You love Jesus Christ and uh, you try to follow his teachings. That Jesus Christ died on the cross for us. Uh, probably prayer. Prayer's a really big one. To love God and love others. Um, coffee. Coffee with friends. That's always good. That gets lots of conversations started and builds community. Um, <laughs> uh, that's all I have. Top priority. <laughs> Prayer. Prayer. The death and resurrection of Christ. Um, probably just staying in the Word. Your personal relationship with Jesus. Salvation through faith alone. Um, how incredibly tenaciously God loves us. The essentials are that uh, scriptures are the inerrant, infallible Word of God, that Jesus is who He says He is, that there is the Trinity, that once you're saved, you're always saved, um, that Christ died for our sins, and He rose again on the third day. He physically and bodily ascended into heaven, and He will be returning for us 
and taken us with him to spend eternity with God. I do not do well under pressure. You are great under I pressure. Do not. You no, live with Dave. You You're under me this pressure all the time. beforehand so I can think about it. Okay. And it's in, which off. means like a. Did I say the series would take us through June? Yeah, maybe June 2012. No, actually, you did great. You know, it, it's, not easy. it's not easy to preach, um, preach at a church where the video uh, introducing the series is better than the series itself, but um, great job, guys. In one word, the key basis for our unity in diversity is God in one word. Or by his other names, God the Father, God the Creator, God the Son, God the Redeemer, God the Holy Spirit. We're unified in the Father, unified in Christ, and unified in the Spirit. In a word, the key basis for our unity in diversity is God. And so I thought, why don't we take some time to study God? Because when we study God, when we get to know him better, we're also at the same time studying and strengthening our unity since God is the ultimate basis of our unity. Make sense? Someone said amen. Anybody else say amen, would you? Okay, it's too late. And there's a word for this study of God. It's a big, scary Ominous word to many. It's a word that often sends my high school students running for the door, moaning in the halls. No, not that, no! Just like that. And that big scary word that means the study of God is, brace yourself for it, theology. Dun, dun, dun. No, oh my God, no. Actually, oh our God, yes. Theology from the word theos for God and logos for word. Theology is the study of God. Or more informally, theology is a way, a key way, how God gives us understanding about himself and our relationship to him. Another short definition of theology I like a lot is theology is faith-seeking understanding. Theology is faith-seeking understanding. Theology, this way that God helps us understand him and our relationship to him, is often summarized into statements of belief or a body of teachings. And those summary belief statements are called by another big scary word to many, brace yourselves again, doctrine. No, not doctrine. It's like I lay that on uh, high school students, like I hit them with a one-two punch. Theology, oh, doctrine, ah. <laughs> Whereupon my students doubled over in apparent pain, cry out, 
Something like, Mr. Lanning, Mr. Lanning, can we please study anything but theology? Anything else, not theology, not doctrine, please. To which I'll say, okay, how about we study catechisms? <laughs> no! Catechism is the Greek word for doctrine. They don't let me get away with that. And so then I say, all right, let's talk about sexual purity. Who wants to go first? <laughs> A long silence follows, and student inevitably, inevitably replies, actually, Mr. Lanning, theology and doctrine and catechism sound great. Can we go outside for this class? I always like to go outside. Chances are, if you're like my students and if you're like me, and those words theology and doctrine and catechism sometimes hit you like punches, chances are then you also share with my students and me the top three reasons why those two words are often so big and scary and heavy. First reason they give me is it's so complicated. All those long words, boring. And so I promise them, and I'll promise you this morning, I'll try as best and creatively as I can to either avoid or explain long, complicated words, and I'll try not to be boring. Given the subject matter of God, isn't it something that to teach theology we have to worry about being boring? Doesn't really say anything about God, I don't think, but it might say something about us. Undaunted or unconvinced, the second reason they give, and this one's often actually the first. And this one, this reason really gets at it, I think, and just, it tears me apart when I hear a kid say this. But theology and doctrine, whenever people talk about that, well, everyone just ends up in a big fight. And the sad truth, my friends, is those kids are way more often than not right about that. They feel deeply the division theology causes, the walls it builds in even one local church. Even the division, ironically enough, especially between brothers and sisters in Christ, they feel deeply that when... We, however, inadvertently seem to be trying our best to stop Jesus' prayer to make us one from happening. You take even a brief overview of the history of the church. All of it's dividing and dividing again and bickering over the centuries, and you will find, with rare if any exceptions, a theological or a doctrinal basis for the division within the body of Christ for the fight. And it really does 
break my heart when people react adversely to studying God. What have we taught our kids? What have they caught from us? Boring? I mean, it's God we're studying. God, as a student would say, God who made like everything from nothing. Boring? That's pretty interesting and spectacular. And by the way, this God, get this, loves us just because. Deeply, madly in love with us. It drives him. He can't escape his love for us if he wanted to. It's part of who he is. He loves us that much just because. Then he offers us eternity. We can live forever with him. I don't want to study that. It makes you want to dance. Let's study them. It's called theology. No! How incredibly ironic. How devilish, really. That given Jesus' prayer for unity, that when brothers and sisters study God, when brothers and sisters seek a greater understanding of God and how we relate to him, that such faith-seeking understanding causes division. When its purpose is to keep us together, in Jesus' words, to help make us one. In the church, instead of witnessing the loving unity of God, each time she divides, witnesses exactly the opposite to a watching world who shake their heads and think, oh yeah, they say their God is love. (laughs) What they should say is they really know how to shoot their own wounded. Let's go be a part of that. Don't think so. Part of the problem is this. We've lost the ability to distinguish between essentials and non-essentials of the faith. Or stated differently, we treat non-essentials exactly the same way we treat essentials when it comes to our unity. And sure, there are some differences that should and even must lead to division, Let me try an obvious example. If a church out there somewhere, let's say Houston, for example, starts teaching there is no God, well, Houston, we have a problem. If that's truly what they're teaching, well, it's no longer Christian because the truth that there is indeed a God is an essential to the faith. It's a non-negotiable. I can't agree to disagree with someone on that and still be Christian. It's a huge part, perhaps the biggest single part imaginable that makes us Christian. We believe there is a God. And we can't be united in Christ with a church that teaches there is no God and yet also claim we're Christians. So there are some differences that should and even must lead to division. But my friends, you look at the doctrinal bases for many denominational differences over the centuries or for the barriers even within the same local church and they don't get anywhere close 
to those foundational, core, necessary, non-negotiable, essential beliefs. The evidence of church, of church history is clear and convincing. We divide over, over almost anything. My own denomination growing up, Christian Reform, came about because people couldn't agree on whether it was a sin to play cards, dance, or send kids to a public school. Now, each of those things might be important to some people for different reasons. But given Jesus' prayer to make us one, do you think they come anywhere near a sufficient reason to divide? And so too with a vast array of other theological and doctrinal conclusions. Baptism by immersion or by sprinkling water? Well, the Greek word baptizo means to immerse, you sprinkling baptizers. So you sprinklers are disobeying the very word of God. Always throw in very when you want to emphasize it. That, that's false teaching. That's heresy. That's what that is. Goes against the very word of God. Do you hear what they're doing? Goes against the very word of the very word. Yes, the very word of God. No unity with you, you sprinkling so-called baptizers. Come on, let's go form our own church. We'll call it the first church of the dunkers. <laughs> and we'll serve donuts. Now you know where Dunkin' Donuts came. No. It's not. <laughs> Come on, let's go. Division over that issue happened. And it's shameful. You baptize infants. They don't even know what's going on. False teaching, heresy. And the list of such reasons for division within the people of God over history is long and notorious and shameful. Now, please hear me again. It's not that those things and other like them are not necessarily important. They may be. Let's discuss them sometime. But let's not divide over them. There is a meaningful difference when it comes to unity and diversity. There is a meaningful difference between important and essential when it comes to unity and diversity in Christ. Non-essentials may be important, but they are not a reason to divide over. We should be loath to divide given Jesus' heartfelt prayer that we stay one even as he was climbing to the cross. Essentials, on the other hand, are what make us Christian. That is, followers of Jesus, and so by definition, they'll divide. 
So part of the problem of maintaining our unity, it seems to me, is we've lost the ability to distinguish between essential and important, between essential and non-essentials of the faith. We treat non-essential exactly the same way we treat essential when it comes to our unity. And so I'm calling, I'm calling the next series, simply calling it The Essentials. What's an essential? An essential is a necessary part of what makes our faith and makes us Christian. Essentials are those foundational, core, necessary, non-negotiable beliefs that we cannot agree to disagree over. Another way to define an essential is anything we should be willing to die for if our lives depended on it. Or anything our very lives in Christ do depend on. Those are, those are essentials. And I want to focus on essentials coming out of this series or included in this series of unity and diversity because you know what? Essentials, the Bible tells us, is what help us forge unity. They motivate unity. They strengthen unity. Abandon the essentials of the faith and you give up God's great, one of the God's great intended common grounds. And the better able we are to identify and know essentials, the better able we are to recognize when we're out in the weeds somewhere, getting heated, debating the finer non-essential points of theology with someone, and check ourselves before it gets out of hand and leads to division. Because the devil, make no mistake, knowing the power of the witness of unity and diversity will push with all of his considerable might toward division over non-essentials. And so we ought to learn to know when we're in danger of being pushed, when we see it, smell it, feel it, and the best way, one best way to know about that and to know it is by knowing the essentials down cold. And not just knowing it here. I'll get to that in a minute. In fact, I'll get to a piece of it right now. There's a well-known illustration involving counterfeit money. Let's find someone. You want to do it? Okay. You weren't here for a service, were you? No. Well, you sang in the choir. But then you left? You went and got coffee? Okay, so you can do that. Okay, how many have played games with her? Okay, does she cheat? Okay, yeah, not too much. Thanks a lot. Yeah. Okay, so a minute, I'm going to ask you to close your eyes. Okay, not yet. I've got a real dollar bill, and I've got a counterfeit uh, Mario Brothers Monopoly dollar bill. You know... The Monopoly money has undergone serious downgrades over the years, right? You parents remember, maybe some of you older, you know, the 500s were the orange ones, right? You know, the white ones, and they're smaller. It saves on paper, I guess. Okay. Monopoly's gone green, okay, because money's green. Never mind. Okay, so, okay, I'm going to ask you to close your eyes. Okay, go ahead, close your eyes. Don't peek. Not peeking. Not peeking, okay. Hold out your hands. Don't do anything yet. Don't peek. Okay, one of those bills is a real dollar bill, and the other one's a counterfeit monopoly bill. Without looking, hold up the real dollar bill. Hey, 
Christ, she got it right. Give her a hand. Okay. All right, you just got lucky. Let's try it again. Okay, ready? That 50-50 chance. We got to at least try it again. Hold up the real dollar bill. There, she got it right again. Good job. Okay, now, how did you know that this was the real dollar bill? Because it feels like a dollar bill. It feels like a dollar bill, right? How do you know it feels like a dollar bill? Because I've held one before. You've held it before. How many times? I don't know. Not enough, I guess, but. <laughs> you knew right away, didn't you? Because you knew what the real thing feels like. Smells like, you didn't taste it. Didn't smell it, okay. All right, now, now I have two counterfeit Mario Brothers Monopoly money. And I have two Major League Baseball counterfeit Monopoly money. Okay, close your eyes. All right, now, I want you to hold high in the air the two Mario Brothers Monopoly money. She picked baseball, baseball. All right, you can do better than that. Let's try it again. You were unlucky that time, right? Okay, close your eyes. She's very good at closing her eyes. Person in the first service kept wanting, to, you know, to look. Okay, ready? Okay, don't look. Okay, hold up. Well, now that you know what the two baseball ones feel like, because you've held them once. They feel the same. Still? But you already felt them. They're both paper. Well, now you should be able to do it because you've looked at it once. Put those two Mario brother bills straight up. She picked Mario Brothers. Mario Brothers! She did it and destroyed my illustration. There you go. No. Hey, what's your name again? Hannah. Hannah. Everyone give Hannah a hand. Now, Hannah got it right, but Hannah, you'll be the first one to tell me. You guessed. Yes? Because they felt the same. You hadn't had the experience with Mario Brothers money to be able to pick them out from counterfeit, had you? It's similar when it comes to essentials. The better we know them, the better we handle them, the better we live them out the more quickly we can understand when a serious threat comes to our unity and diversity, an illegitimate one on a non-essential, because we'll know, hey, that's not, that's not something to divide over. It's still the real deal. They do that with bank tellers. Did you know part of their bank teller training? At least they used to. They used to make sure in a bank teller school or an experience that they handle lots and lots and lots of money. And it's amazing. It's amazing. You get an experienced bank teller, you can make that, you can take... The best counterfeit bill in the world that any expert counterfeit, you handed that bank teller and they go, something not right. And then they bring out that little marker and look for the strip, right, and all the clever. 
And they know because they've experienced it. They've studied it. They've felt it. And we want to be able to do better than guess when something comes down the road that we're unsure about. Because when pressed, when frustrated, when angry, we'll guess whatever makes us right. We become the measure of truth rather than God. The Bible has a word for that. It's called idolatry, when we follow our own conscience rather than God. And wow, how many deep conflicts can be avoided if we can know the essentials so well that they become a safe haven for unity when we're disagreeing over non-essentials. Let's debate the non-essentials. Let's talk about them. Most of them at least are important. But let's first know the essentials so well that they form a firm foundation that we can more easily, more quickly distinguish between what's a genuine issue impacting the unity that Jesus craves for us versus a counterfeit one. Just like a bank teller can tell easily the difference between a genuine and a counterfeit bill. That's my hope. And my prayer on spending this time the next few months focusing on the essentials, that it strengthens our unity, builds or buttresses common ground, that we become more acquainted with it, and that we can maybe manage to do that without too many big words or too many fights. And on that note, I'd really appreciate your prayers, especially for this series. Pray for me and the leadership team as we plan this out, because I'll touch on some things that may threaten unity, even when, in my opinion, it should strengthen it. So please pray. Please pray that I can correctly discern where those tough spots are here and treat them in a way that builds the body up and doesn't threaten to break her down. And please, continue as you've done in the time that I've been here, continue giving me grace the latitude. I always, um, I approach a series studying God, great eagerness, of course. It's exciting. I mean, he's God. But also with great fear and humility. I mean, he's God. So pray that what I say he truly wants said, would you, and that his spirit covers over my lack of understanding or ability to communicate the essentials of who he is and our relationship to him. Would you please pray? The third reason students often give me for their trepidation over theology, they say, but theology is all about belief and what you think, and there's those lists, and there's no room for our experience or how we feel or our action. And once again, I always think, what have we taught our kids, my friends? What have they caught from us? Have they caught that Christianity is all about our intellect and what we think and that our faith is all about propositional truths, a list of truths that we memorize and even study, but it doesn't really make any real difference? Well, if we've taught that, 
then no wonder there are those who are saying, enough with those lists. They must not work. They must have no value. No wonder some are teaching things like, truth is all relative to you anyway. A very dangerous proposition in and of itself when you remember that one way the Bible describes sin is people doing what's right in their own eyes. Think about it. But no wonder some are saying this. Have they caught that from us? Not by what we say, but the disconnect between what we say and who we are and how we live. Of course, Christianity is much more than a set of beliefs in our heads. Foundationally, it's relational. We're made to be relational. A good theologian is not suggesting otherwise. But my friends, a set of beliefs is a key part Imagine a husband who says to a marriage counselor, but I love my wife. Isn't that enough? You want me to get to know her even more? Read things about what make women tick? Ah, it just makes it so complicated. Can't I just love her? Knowing your wife, knowing your husband deeply, Deepens the relationship. Duh. The more you know about him or her, the greater the intimacy. Everyone agrees with that, sacred and secular. Intimacy without deep understanding isn't deep. I don't think it's intimacy. And God wants us deeply, wants us to know him deeply, and so he invites us to study him as one angle, window into who he is. So we can know more about him. He reveals himself to us so he can be known and understood. And do we say, no thanks, that's only going to complicate our relationship and that's only about your mind? Knowledge of something in turn motivates and affects feelings and actions and experience. It's a tight package. They're not at odds with each other forcing us to pick one. True theology includes not only the mind, but our feelings and actions and experience as well. To those critics of the church who complain about an intellect only faithful of lists, I agree we need to also emphasize heart and soul and might and action. Thank you for bringing that helpful corrective to the body of Christ. It's needed. Hopefully it leads us, if we don't all fall apart over it, to include all that in love as well. But we need those things also, not instead, and that's a dangerous line that many writers are writing and suggesting. A belief that motivates action is true in saving faith, ask James. And belief plays her role. What we think matters, too. Listen to just a tiny sample of all God says about sound doctrine and teaching and what we know. Paul is writing to Timothy, his last will and testament. He would die soon after, martyr for his faith. Here's what he has to say to Timothy, who he calls my son. Watch your life and watch your doctrine closely. 
Persevere in them, because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. God says this to the leaders in the church. They must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as has been taught so they can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. You must teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. Paul, back to Timothy, I give you this charge, Tim. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time's going to come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they'll gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They'll turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. And then maybe one of my favorites from Proverbs 4. Hold on to instruction. Do not let it go. Guard it well, for it is your life. Yes, the best theology includes feelings and experience and action. And I'll do my best to show that as we go along. But it also includes what we think and believe. I'll tell you what... um, I've told my theology students in the past, by the end of the series, by the end of the semester, my hope is that maybe your reaction to theology and doctrine goes from no to hooray. I had no idea that studying God could be so much fun. And that I could express myself in the way that I know him and have experienced him and can share that in community. And look at what knowing God and studying more gives me a better understanding of how I can love others and and be a real impact of love in the world and and in my community. Not so much fun to study God. What could possibly be more interesting? It's God. And oh, it makes it so much easier. So much easier to get along with each other and to act in love to God and others with the solid common ground of essentials. Oh, hooray! No small task to get people excited about theology and doctrine, I know, but in God's hands, nothing is impossible. Except maybe this. I'm just kidding. So brief practice, I say theology, you say, hooray, theology. Doctrine. Yeah, we'll work on it. (laughs) Here's a peek at some of the topics we'll cover. There are subtopics as well, but we'll find, we'll try to find where those unifying common ground essentials lie within each. We'll start with God and scripture, then humanity and sin, And then the person and work of Jesus, the Holy Spirit, and we'll talk about salvation. Finally, we'll circle back and we'll take another good, long, hard look at us, the church, the people of God, in light of all else we've studied. And oh, I'm really excited about this series. It's it's exciting to study God. He's exciting. And it's exciting to know that 
When we study God, the key basis of our unity, when we do this theology, we're strengthening the unity and diversity that Jesus craves for his people. So let's do it. So next week, I'll ask the question, what is God like? So come and hear what he's like. I'll give you a preview. This also from one of my past students. God, he's amazing, she says. And it's essential for us to know and become and live and act out in the light of the truth of the one named I am. It's essential to know and become and live and act out in the light of who God is. So we'll start that next week, Lord willing. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for being a God who is love and a God out of love who reveals himself to us to get to know. Father, help us as we use one tool, theology, to help us to get to know you. Open our hearts and minds to be aware that Theology isn't the only tool, it's one. And help us, Father, to accept it and embrace it as being one tool, an important one. I ask, Father, that throughout this series, as we endeavor to find, rediscover, or if we already know it, to strengthen our common ground that you help use it, Father, to help forge and motivate our unity, even in our diversity and because of our diversity, so we can better witness to a diverse world who you are and how it is you want to relate with us in love. In Jesus' name, I pray these things, and all God's people said, Amen. Would you stand, please, for God's benediction, his good words. This from the book of Deuteronomy from Moses, who has just given them all the law summarized in the book of Deuteronomy. And he's about to step out of the tent and follow God up to the mountaintop and die. And it's the last thing now he's said to these people that have consumed so much of his life. Here's what's on his heart, and I've no doubt or little doubt the author of Proverbs 4.13 drew inspiration from these words of Moses. Moses writes to Israel, and God says to us through these same words, Take to heart all the words I have solemnly declared to you this day, so that you may command your children to obey carefully all the words of this law. They are not just idle words. They are your life. In the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior, amen. Have a great week, West Bowles. We'll see you next week. God bless you all.